welcome to Regulate Tech in its 27th episode after a brief summer break. How was your summer, Richard? It was very good. I um, finally got to to meet up with family that I hadn't seen for a long time. So I think like many people, that's the, 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 the high priority this summer was to get to see people. Thanks to the wonderful vaccines that are out there, which whilst not yes. perfect, at least give us a lot more confidence about seeing older relatives. So. I very much agree, and and summer is for catching up with folks and and just having those um, those long dinners that that don't necessarily have to end at any given point in time because you're you're getting up the day after. It's it's, it's quite lovely. I agree. There's a, there's a lovely word in Spanish, sobremesa, which is which is what you do uh, uh, um, above the table. So after after lunch, typically when it just extends and extends and extends so every mess it's like you just That's never like get a very up Spanish concept but I approve <laughs> I'm sure the so, Swedes do something similar <laughs> yes yes that's right so we we said that one of the things that we have been touching on or just talking about is the question of of government surveillance overall and how to think about the legitimate uses of government surveillance but also more problematic cases and since we've been in off duty in our podcast whole uh, duties. Uh, there's been a lot of news on this this subject. We have the Pegasus piece of reporting that we're going to talk about, uh, but we also have the news from the US that uh, iPhones will now be scanned for uh, child sexual abuse imagery. And it would be interesting, I think, also to talk about something that happened a little bit earlier this year, which is the cracking of the EncroChat network, as well as the launch of the Anom network. There's a there's a whole series of issues here that, that all seem to boil down to the same question, which is, how do we think about and how do we best structure government surveillance? Let's Let's start from the beginning. Is government surveillance legitimate? I mean, there are legitimate cases. And so, again, as somebody who's worked in politics as well as uh, on the technology side, you, you know, you do have a duty to try and keep citizens safe and secure. And actually, that, that is, a, again, a fundamental human right uh, that, that you should be protected from harm. And so I think there are very legitimate reasons why a government would need to be able to see what somebody is up to at certain times. And, and then the key question of what are the thresholds? What are the criteria under which that surveillance is justified? Uh, what are the legal mechanisms that are in place to make sure that the power, which is a very in intrusive power, is being used correctly? Uh, um, some really interesting questions around the extent to which it, it's targeted versus broad surveillance, which I think is quite fundamental. Is it, is it that you know we've identified or a government's identified one particularly bad person, they, they've passed all the tests, uh, met all the thresholds for, for a privacy invasive intervention to be justified. But will that intervention only affect that individual or, or will it affect a much broader range of individuals? So all of these sort of questions come up. But fundamentally, I, I don't want to live in a world in which when a government that does respect human rights has legitimate concerns that somebody is going to cause serious harm to others, that they would have no ability to, to surveil, to look at what that individual is doing in order to prevent that harm from occurring. That I don't think is a world I want to live in. Some, some privacy fundamentalists, I think, do. They come and say, well, look, privacy is so important that, you know, if a few bad guys get away with it, then tough. Um, I, I don't think that's where I'm coming from. 
And, and is it different with different kinds of surveillance? I think one of the core things that we've learned in the last couple of decades is that the online space is still trying to, to find its, its right role in our social understanding of the world. Is, is, for example, our conversation here, obviously we're going to podcast this later, but you could conceivably think of somebody eavesdropping on us. Is that very much like a phone call or is that like a conversation in, in the street where anyone can overhear? What the kind of context that online presents is also varied from app to app and service to service. So, so it seems as if, if sort of if you're if you're looking at the extreme case, which is always useful, and you're saying no surveillance of any services of any kind should be allowed. That seems to be clearly preposterous in in sort of most cases. But then if you sort of start to scale down from that, it's interesting to try to figure out what what is obviously legitimate. And I think one of the examples, and I'll I'll, uh, be curious to see what you think here, of something that was obviously legitimate was the the news that the FBI had released released an app or a, a service called Anom, which essentially they had achieved ground rights to it and then managed to market it as an app for criminals and criminals just took the bait and they're like yeah great app for us we're going to use this and that will be brilliant and and nobody will be able to eavesdrop on us and every single piece of communication went into fbi servers over rather an extended time it seems that that to me seems to be entirely unproblematic yeah, I mean, uh, in a sense, that's the ideal world that, that we regular civilians can get on with using our secure services um, without government seeking to break into them, whilst all the serious criminals sign up for different services and, hey, government have at it. You know, if you, if you know a service is 100% used by criminals, then then it's a lot more straightforward for the law enforcement agency and in a way it's a lot easier for us. I think the challenge is where governments are breaking into more mainstream consumer services is clearly how do you ensure that they're only going to go and compromise the accounts of the bad guys and not sweep up a whole bunch of innocent people. And when we come on to talk about this Pegasus project, this, this NSO, I mean, that's precisely the claim that, that um, uh, people believe that they have a list of phone numbers that were being used through this system. And you can look at that list of phone numbers and see that some of them do appear to be the kind of serious criminals that would want, you know, would warrant that kind of surveillance. And some of them appear to be politicians and journalists and political activists, where I think most of us would go, my God, you know, there's no way that those people's uh, communication should be compromised. But so the things like Anom and EncroChat, there's another one like that, that these, these services that end up being used predominantly by the criminal fraternity, um, that, in a sense, I say is the holy grail. Like, we all use WhatsApp, they use EncroChat. Great. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, life's a lot, lot simpler. But um, I guess, sadly, now after those episodes and the fact they've received such high profile coverage, the next person who launches a you know, super secure service directed at the criminal market is probably going to uh, have a lot fewer takers than they did. You can only do this once or twice, I think, before it's burnt out. I think that's right. But there's an interesting reminder here too, because EncroChat is the other example that I find fascinating, where French police sort of, they they ran into a lot of criminal uh, operations and as they were busting them, they found the same kinds of apps and phones everywhere. And they were like, hmm, this seems as if it would be worthwhile looking into. And we don't know what happened. We don't know what they did, but it seems they were able to crack the entire network and then listen in uh, in in, in uh, 
plain text to what everything that was sent essentially across that network. Uh, stuff that has now become evidence and recognized as evidence in even Swedish courts, for example. There was a huge debate about whether or not the means whereby which the French police had accessed this would be relevant or not. But the Swedish courts were sort of, eh, you know, we have a principle of free evidentiary evaluation and this seems to be relevant evidence and so we'll allow it. Uh, and so it wasn't disallowed on the basis of its production. Now, I think EncroChat is the other example of something that's that's uh, largely not problematic because this is, again, a dedicated network. Um, but th- there is an important sort of callback here to the early crypto wars that we had at the end of the 90s because at those points in time, the view from law enforcement was that if we allow encryption as a generic technology, we will never be able to look at what criminals are doing whatsoever. That has now consistently proven to be false because the entire system is always going to be vulnerable even if the very smallest sort of communication pattern is encrypted. So there is always going to be many more attack vectors into a system like this than just focusing in encryption. I think that's important to remember because I'm sure that we'll get back to the discussion about encryption in the coming, say, two or three years and and focus on this singular technology rather than remembering its systematic role in a much larger and much more vulnerable system where, where it's been proven again and again that that the the visions or nightmares of of law enforcement in the 90s have not come true right that's right i mean there's one place where the, the communications are always unencrypted and that's on the screen of the device that the person is looking at because by definition it's it's useless if you can't see the photo or read the text. It's useless to you. So, so from a law enforcement point of view, what you want to be doing is looking over the shoulder, uh, virtually of the person as they look at their screen. And those are the technologies like this one developed by this Israeli company called NSO. That and where you've got a specific target, they effectively allow somebody to to look at everything on the phone, to be looking over the shoulder of the phone user, all the communications that go through it. And the advantage of of that mechanism, we can talk about the disadvantage, but the advantage from a technical point of view is that it doesn't require you to break the encryption of all the individual services that the person is using, that the target is using. It, it doesn't require you to crack WhatsApp's encryption or Telegram's encryption or anybody else's. Um, you're, you're basically getting hold of the device, the end user device. Now, from a law enforcement point of view, they will say, great, that, that's excellent when I've got a specific target, but they'll still be frustrated because they'll say, well, sometimes actually I want to sweep across all the communications on, on a service like WhatsApp in order to find my target. So it works really well for known individual targets. It doesn't work so well if you're, if you're trying to kind of collect intelligence by um, sifting through a whole bunch of different communications. But there's a principal question there that I think is important. And, and, and you touched on this earlier when you sort of talked about uh, where, where it becomes illegitimate with government surveillance. And that's the notion that you should be going on fishing expeditions, just see what's out there. The, the, the notion of blanket surveillance to detect whatever is unlawful, those two, I think, are, are still very much uh, considered illegitimate broadly by people who think about this. And I think that the, the reality is that what we have been able to do in the last couple of decades is to target the kinds of operations where you want to listen in or, or gather evidence in different ways 
by using social engineering or by using different kinds of other weaknesses in the social systems uh, that criminal operations also rely on. And so, so it's been, been shown that the fishing expedition or the blanket surveillance models that, that were launched early on, I don't know if you remember the clipper chip, for example, every computer would be ultimately something that you could eavesdrop or just break into through this particular design chip. It's a crazy idea, right? The entire architecture would be built in a vulnerable way. Uh, but that now seems to be a, a discredited position, given what we have seen in the last couple of decades, I think. Although in some areas, um, it, it is still there. And so the other development that we've just seen literally this week, you touched on earlier, was Apple saying it's now going to be scanning all of the images that are uploaded to iCloud or sent through its messenger service to see if they're childhood sexual abuse images, so awful material that should be removed. But, but that, there they are going to, that's not targeting known individual abusers it's actually scanning everything in order to see if you can find the abusers and that's causing a huge storm this week obviously and naturally a sort of huge debate around whether that broad scanning is or is not justified set against the harm uh, that we're trying to prevent it's almost the exception that proves the rule though mm-hmm. because we have come to realize and and come to agree as a society that child sexual abuse imagery is the one thing where we think it's actually legitimate to do things that we would never else it's almost like a reverse proof if you do it for for a cs uh, ai then that means that that's the only thing you do it for. Terrorism has been sort of at the edge. Terrorism is definitely in there. And I I have felt that pressure, shall we say, (laughs) from people um, who investigate terrorist incidents, which again, joking aside, are are, very serious threats to life. Um, But they precisely want that. And I'm sure you've heard this as well. You know, you guys can build technology that can do amazing things with search and advertising and blah, blah, blah. Um, If you can target get somebody to sell them coca-cola you could use your same technology to scan all the content and spot the people who are sharing terrorist content and they're they're actually quite serious about that so so the pressure is there but again that that the the debate has to be sort of where where does one draw the line um and and again that's coming out in the in the apple debate today Uh, people are saying look yes apple is saying this technology will only be used for this but hang on a minute (laughs) there's nothing technically to stop that same technology being used to detect anything. I mean, once you, if you've got a technology that scans images and tries to find patterns that match a particular set of hashes, that's a, a code for the image, then that technology in theory could be used for absolutely anything. Uh, it's a general purpose technology. It suggests a deep design philosophical question or philosophy of design question here that I think is interesting in two layers. One is sort of the the user policy layers. You know, should you design your user policies and indeed your underlying architectures in such a way that they uh, they can only be used for purposes that you would be comfortable having expanded by a less legitimate government or a government that's more authoritarian than your current government is? Should you only build technologies or should you only adopt policies that are such that if you end up in a climate that's very different from the one you're in now, you can still point to those policies and those technologies and say, here's the limit of what I can do. And, and it, we, we both lived through the, you know, what happened after 9-11. And it's, it's fair to say, I think, that the Patriot Act 
did shift positions in the privacy debate quite quickly and quite understandably, absolutely. But that's sort of a case where, where you could see that the design of technologies and indeed of policies seems to be something that, that can be that where you could argue that it should be proof against the spectrum of different political environments. I don't know if that's tenable, but it seems like a like an, an interesting principle to discuss. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's this, I guess, a debate between whether um, what you can do and what you should do, and the extent to which you want to build technologies in such a way that they they, they absolutely prevent a a particular privacy intrusion from happening, or whether you're comfortable with the potential being there, but you have a set of rules and a set of institutions that prevent the abuse. Um, and again, the NSO example is a really interesting one because there's a say there is a technology that can make any phone and all of its applications open to somebody okay. who's carrying out surveillance. Let's let's do this. Let's talk generally about this. Yeah. Those of our listeners who, who have not who have been spending the summer as as they should and not as technology <laughs> nerds reading up on NSO probably yeah. need a little bit of a background here. So let's talk about NSO and Pegasus. Explain to us yeah. what is it that we have found out. Who are NSO and what is yeah. Pegasus? So, so NSO is an, an Israeli company. It's actually, I mean, Israel. You see it in the movies, um, but the movies are reflecting reality. Israel has one of the best cybersecurity industries in the world, both defensive and offensive. So the, the Israeli government, and again, people, people have different views on, on how legitimate this is, but the Israeli government you know, faces security threats that mean that it has developed incredible capacity to surveil electronic communications. In order it, to be that's able to... a great startup scene and a set of really good engineering colleges and a really strong technological actor overall. That's right. but, but I think there's no doubt they're a kind of spin-off. There are, there are people who go into the Israeli military and develop things to deal with this absolutely sort of existential you know, security issues, the security situation that Israel faces, and then they spin out of that into security companies. And you sort of say, it's sort of not surprising that for a very small country, it has this incredible offensive and defensive cybersecurity team. And so a lot of the encryption stuff that people use around the world, I remember all the, all the stuff that goes into cable TV, for example, that, that only allows subscribers to decrypt their broadcast things. Typically, that kind of stuff gets made in Israel and then sold to, to companies around the world. So, so that's the back, that's the sort of context. This incredible cybersecurity um, uh, capability they have, and one of these companies develops has developed a tool, and the tool essentially means that uh, uh, if you're using your mobile phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android phone, and there are lots of different ways they do this, but you you basically click on a link or do something. And that's some of the ways that apparently it now gets onto your phone. Um, you don't even need to click anything. It'll just kind of arrive on your phone. But it's something that, that will uh, essentially create a backdoor into your phone. So it means that somebody who's sitting in a control center somewhere can look at all of the data that is flowing through the phone of a person who's been successfully targeted. So they're pushing a bit of software out there that will compromise your phone and, and open it up to the person who has asked for that to happen. And this um, is Pegasus. That's the this is Pegasus, yeah. So, so essentially subverting all of those security controls that Android and iPhone have built. And typically what they're doing is exploiting these things that we often call in the business zero-day vulnerabilities. It's some, it's some way into the phone, some way uh, uh, there's a sort of bug in the software somewhere that somebody can use to get 
through into your phone that has not been found and patched. Because if Google or Apple had seen the bug, uh, they would have closed it down. So these people are finding bugs in the software <laughs> that we use all the time. Uh, that's their expertise is to find those bugs. And instead of telling the companies about those bugs, they're using them to create these little backdoors, these wormholes into phones. And they're doing that on behalf of customers. And the customers are governments or government agencies. Uh, and what NSO, the company makes this tool, Pegasus, say is that they carefully vet the governments that are buying their service. So the governments are buying this hack, essentially. They're buying a way to hack into phones. NSO say, look, they don't touch the data. It goes straight from the phone to the government that commissioned it. But NSO say they do carry out checks on those customers and make it really clear to them they should only use this tool for very, very limited purposes. And they certainly shouldn't be using it for things like spying and on journalists. And they a transparency report where they, where they claim to have off-boarded clients who have actually used it to target in ways that, if, if you sort of, to be fair to them, that's sort of yeah. what they would say then. And... That's and right. They say that anyone targeting a journalist or a human rights activist is immediately off-boarded from their services. And, and this is where we're a little in the dark right now. So what, what we've had, um, and again, it's up to me, that there was a list of phone numbers has been leaked somehow. The list of the phone numbers is alleged to be a list of people that had been asked to be targeted. 50,000 phone numbers yeah. on that. Yeah, and including people like most of the French government. Um, and so, you know, very sort of prominent people and very surprising people. And so, again, NSO, we, we don't know because this is all done in secret. We don't know, A, if those phone numbers really were uh, targets. And B, we don't know, you know, how many of them ended up having the software targeted at them until a lot more work has been done. And that's what the, there's a consortium of journalists who are doing this. They are sort of going through, they're, they're finding phones of the people who were targeted and, and where the phone has not been changed recently, because that might have destroyed all traces, but where the, the person has been using the phone for the last few years, they're able to do some forensic analysis. And, it, and in many cases, they're able to see, oh yes, there are traces that show that the Pegasus software wasn't stopped. And this so is Amnesty who has done the forensics on this, that's right? right? I'm just done it, but now other people are doing it. I think the French security services have been doing it uh, on right, French right. phones, and so these are, you know, I don't think I would imagine out. they have. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so what you what you've got is a list of phone numbers, not entirely verified. Assumptions about where they're coming from, so as there are claims about who might have put the numbers on the list, and then forensic work that is able, in some instances, to say, oh yes. Uh, the Pegasus software is on the phone <laughs> that is on the list. Therefore, one might reasonably draw the conclusion that there was a customer who asked for that number to be surveilled and NSO did enable that surveillance to take place. And NSO vehemently denies any of this, of course. In an interview with their founder recently, one of the CEOs, he says that he doesn't know where the list comes from. The yeah. list doesn't look as if it's from a, the NSO systems. They have, a, you know, their average client has 45 targets a year. So 50,000, they wouldn't have had that many targets during their entire lifetime. And he also said, which I thought was, was really interesting, that uh, he thought that there was something fundamental wrong, fundamentally wrong with the forensics. So, so they're, they're in a position 
position of complete denial. They're sort of saying yes. we have nothing to do with this and it's all wrong, which is, which is, I mean, to be fair, that's a position that he can legitimately take until more evidence is unearthed. But it does seem to me that there is a lot of really good technologists on the other side associated with with different research institutes, etc., who are arguing that, you know, when they sampled 67 of these phones, 37 of them had traces of Pegasus on them. From a percentage perspective, that's probably larger than chance. <laughs> so yes. it seems as if their list and the phone numbers and the prevalence of Pegasus in some way is related. Now, yeah, there's, there's, there's something there. There's something there. Because again, this is not, we should remember, well, it's not the first time that, in particular, um, an institute in Canada uh, um, has been looking at this previously. So, other right. activists in the, the Middle place. East, yeah. you know, this is not the first time. In fact, there's a lawsuit already ongoing because the, the sort of last time that this really became front and center. Uh, the the vector, the posh word, the vector of infection was WhatsApp messages, um, and they've managed to figure out how to send a WhatsApp message that would lead to encryption. And, in, and actually, WhatsApp have been suing NSO now for quite a few months. Um, uh, oh, since alleging. 2019, I think the, the yes, lawsuit yeah. was filed in 2019, and and you had large other industry actors like Microsoft and others joining the lawsuit, and the yeah. lawsuit interestingly targets. NSO, which which brings us to to sort of one of the questions you raised early in in this in this episode, which is, is it legitimate to sell a tool spyware that can do this? And under what conditions, you know, should such things be sold? The Israeli government, for example, considered this a, a kind of munition with dual use yes, provisions, right. according to the Vasna agreement. I think so. There are export controls on it, which which adds another dimension, which is should it only be sold? Can it be sold by a private company, but only on the government in oversight? And, and how does that work? And so, so walk us through how should we think about how should we yeah. think about the legitimate sale of spyware i mean i i personally feel very uncomfortable with it being sold for the simple reason and again you know you and i have worked for companies that regularly attack for the the corrupting effect of the profit motive um and and the allegations you do things you otherwise wouldn't do because you're trying to turn a fast buck and if you apply that here you have to say look if 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 a, a business yeah, and this is a business I think that was going public. It certainly, you know, is a, is a business that receives funding oh, from it was investors. Acquired by the founders, so it's now yeah. founder led again. A venture capitalist bought them for a while, but now I think they they are owned by the founders again. But there's people in there trying to make a lot of money out of it, and the way they will make money is by having more customers using the product more. I mean, that's how business works. So you you have to say you have to ask questions to say, look, if from a privacy point of view. Really, we should be hoping to have the fewest possible number of customers using it least frequently. You know, it should be only in the most dire circumstances and only governments that can really prove their bona fides and their legitimacy. That's in conflict with a profit motive, which would tend to say, well, look, you know, if in doubt, sell it to them <laughs> because that way we're going to build our customer base and therefore build the value of the business. So yeah. that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, but there's another layer to this that I think is interesting to think through if you're if you're sort of a, a game theorist, and that is that even if it is sold under the auspices of the government, that government has a really interesting incentive structure as well because it gets you know favors and counterfavors. There you there's your political soft power and being the purveyor of these technologies. Plus, 
you get a really good image of what other people are targeting because yes. you will obviously have access to all of the servers of the company located in your country so that you can look into those and then see what's being surveilled, which means that the meta intelligence you get out of that is, is magnificent. So not only the profit motive, the yield political soft power motive and the, the sort of overall intelligence motive seems to be interacting in an interesting sort of dynamic here, don't you think? It is. It is and that, I mean, that last point you made, I'm, sh I'm sure that the Israeli government would swear blind that they have no knowledge of what NSO is doing or who their customers are as well. So everyone will swear blind, but you're right. No, any government anywhere, I mean, it's not exclusive to the Israeli government, uh, any spy outfit anywhere in the world that knows that one of their national industries is being sold abroad is going to turn up with a top secret order saying you must tell me everything about what's going on uh, and and you must not tell anyone that you've told me or you'll go to jail and I'm sure that'd be exactly the same with the UK or Sweden or anywhere else you know that's like that's the reality of it but but you're right so um I think so the profit motive is concerning kind of per se the the government oversight potentially acts as a check and balance but that only um, works if one has like a, a sufficient degree of trust in what that government is doing. And as you say, that the government is not, you know, trading off as favors. The, the government that is signing off the export orders is not somehow playing a game. And we do have parallels. I mean, you, you, this is sort of within the framework that we've had over the years that's built around arms sales. And exactly the same debate takes place around arms sales uh, that you apply with your British arms company, you apply to the British government. Whether or not they grant permission will depend on geopolitical considerations for you to sell your arms abroad, and and they're often involved in those conversations. But as I say, if you if you are not going to have it delivered by private companies, what is the alternative? And the alternative is for governments to do it directly. So, so in this case, I, I'm pretty confident that the people who are working at the NSO and built these tools in Israel have had some relationship with the Israeli military and Israeli. Um, security services. The other option would be that you keep the technology within the security, that you kind of nationalize it from a technical point of view that you say, look, spy technology is too powerful. Um, this kind of technology is too powerful for a private company to have it. The only people who can develop it are governments. So, so uh, that'll be the National Security Agency in the US, the GCHQ in the UK, uh, the Israeli security service, all of the, the technology will be developed there. And then essentially, provided directly by the governments that own that technology to other governments. And you end up with the talent problem there, right? If you have these enormously talented engineers who know that if they go off into the startup sector and do something else, they can probably earn a fair bit of money. And so, so they're thinking about what should I do with my life? How should I do this? And by offering them the opportunity to do this as a private business with uh, an upside to it, and that's where sort of the profit motive works, you can attract the very best talent. And, and it has to be said that this is it's not a simple thing to design the kind of spyware we're looking at here. It requires significant smarts and knowledge and education and research. So, so this is, I, I wonder, I mean, I'm, I'm almost, it might seem uh, a bit <laughs> harsh, but I, I wonder if a government could attract as much 
competence as uh, the, you could get if you're sort of allowing this to be privatized. It's it's a question of the NSA, right? I think many intelligent and very smart people are moving into the NSA and they do so for patriotic reasons and, and that's sort of a good recruiting ground for the NSA. But if the NSA uh, had the same ability to hire as, say, Facebook or Google uh, on the same conditions, then they might be able to recruit even more people. Yeah, I mean, it's a, in a sense, it's a way that government gets technology kind of on the cheap, or a little bit cheaper than would otherwise be the case. And again, it applies similarly to, to arms uh, manufacturers yeah. who, who are generally private sector organizations. Partly, it's, a, I think, a talent question, but as much as anything, it's a kind of cr- cross-subsidy question. <laughs> the government bungs somebody a bunch of money to develop, you know, aerospace technology. That company will then sell the aerospace technology commercially to commercial clients, similar technology, spin-off right. technology. And the same can apply here, that, that you know, this kind of technology could be used for other, uh, again, entirely commercial, entirely legitimate purposes, which will create another income stream that helps boost it, which, which the government couldn't tap into. Government wouldn't be able to tap into that commercial income stream. So I think you're right. I think we may be stuck with it. I mean, I questioned it, but I think we may be stuck with it. And then you need to ask, well, what are the frameworks that, you know, would allow us uh, to keep this in check to make sure, I, I think uh, we'd certainly be agreed that what we want is to make sure that it is genuinely being used for bad guys. And by bad guys, we mean, I would say, sort of consistent with the kind of tests you'd apply under the European Convention for Human Rights, which would yeah. typically say surveilling a political opponent or a journalist would never be okay. I mean, you know, Strasbourg Court would shoot that down in two seconds if it, uh, and they make it, may yet get the chance because one of the allegations is that Hungary, the government of Hungary or agencies in Hungary appear to, uh, according to some of the numbers on the list, may have been surveilling people who are in the journalistic world rather than terrorists or anything more serious like that. So they may get to test that. But my, my work assumption would be that surveilling a journalist or an opposition politician because they're annoying in Europe would be struck down in two seconds by any decent court or any independent court, whereas surveilling somebody who's accused of terrorism would be upheld and you'd have no problem with the appropriate sort of uh, legal structures in place doing that. And then there'll be some gray areas around like extremists who, who are on the verge of being terrorists, and that's where our famous sort of balancing tests under human rights law would come in. But I think, you know, if we agree that that's the model we want, where these kind of technologies are, are available but limited, actually as NSO themselves say they are, but we want to absolutely. be absolutely certain that they are limited only to those bad guys where the surveillance would be justified under a decent functioning human rights law framework. Then, then we need to figure out how we make that happen and then prevent the technologies then bleeding over into being used for these inappropriate human rights violating a particular sort of political um, surveillance type activities. Well, your test there is interesting because it's a use case test. You're asking whether or not it's being used to target, say, somebody who's involved in terrorism or if it's being used to target a political activist or a journalist. But you could also imagine a world in which you you sort of tested the quality of the democratic regime that you were selling to. Uh, in another world, you could say, are there constitutional safeguards, checks and balances, transparency requirements and accountability structures available in this country to make sure 
whether the use of this software will ultimately be open to public scrutiny. That could be another kind of test that you could apply, um, and and that would then that would then mean that you would have to do quite an I think in depth analysis of of a country in order to determine if you think that that country has those mechanisms in place. But which one do you think is the right, what's the right model there? I'm going to get an experience of this from dealing with law enforcement requests. Um, again, at Facebook and Google would have been the same. You, you had to come yeah. up with a policy and you could basically cut it either way. You could say, is a country as a whole uh, respectful of human rights? And if so, we'll do business with them. And if not, we won't. Or you would look at use cases. We end up settling settling on use cases, uh, frankly, because that that represent that reflected reality better. So you could take a country, you know, like the UAE. Uh, the UAE, I would not trust uh, in terms of um, refraining from political surveillance and seeking information about political opponents. I think I don't trust the UAE to if, if they were making a request for data. Uh, um, not to request data inappropriately on political targets. But at the same time, the UAE does face serious terrorism threats. It has the kind of child abuse threats anyone else has. So therefore, if you had a request from data for data that was presented and appeared legitimately to be a request for data concerning someone who's about to carry out a terrorist attack or is harming children, I think you should provide the data. Um, it's necessary in order to prevent that harm doesn't mean you're saying yes to every request from the UAE, but also you're not saying no to those terrorism, genuine terrorism requests, simply because the UAE does have a record of, say, carrying out political surveillance, which would not be acceptable under a framework like the European Convention on Human Rights. So I'm a use case guy for that reason, um, because I say I think you need to look at the purpose of the activity uh, and not just say, look, in, in a country, you know, all of their surveillance is inappropriate, uh, or equally that all of it is appropriate. And just to flip that round, you might get requests from a country like the UK that if you're applying the use case test, like your starting point is likely to be to assume that they're going to be consistent with human rights law because all their law says they are and can be tested. But you might get a request there where you look at it, it smells wrong. And again, you're going to reject it. Um, just because it smells wrong and maybe it's an individual officer who's, you know, gone off uh, piste and is sort of doing things inappropriately. Um, but you shouldn't have a blanket yes either in a country just because you think it's you know got a solid human rights framework. It's a, it requires a deeply casuistic approach. If you think that country Z, whatever country that is, uh, has a set of use cases that are, are legitimate and a set of use cases that are illegitimate, and those can vary in frequency and number. Uh, what you have to do, though, what you have to invest in as a company is that you have to invest into the capability of being able to assess those use cases deeply because you can't only, obviously, take it on face value. Now, if the, if the use case is only described by the requesting party, uh, then what you end up judging is how good they are at uh, fulfilling your requirements for use cases. You have, yes. ability, you have to develop the ability to test the, the grounds for the use cases, which I think makes for a much more robust model. And I like your argument. And I think that the use case model is probably the right one. But it's, it's important to realize the kinds of demands in time and expertise that it puts on a company to be able to evaluate the use case vis-a-vis -vis just blanketly looking at the mechanisms in a constitution or you know the, the sort of rule of law or other things that are more easy to assess and to assess once and then yeah. use that as a guide. 
And I think that many people underestimate the, 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 the sort of carefulness of the approach that you, that you outline here and, and how that has, I think, characterized a lot of what, the, of what companies like Facebook and indeed Google and others have tried to do in the last 10 years or so. And uh, there's, there's some credit there that they're not being given for what I think is a very thoughtful approach. That's right. I mean, I always felt there were sort of two, two things that you could do wrong from a human rights perspective when faced with requests for access to data. One is to provide data when it was inappropriate, where you violated somebody's human rights, where you violated their privacy, and, and there was no legitimate reason to do so. But equally, refusing to provide data where the provision of that data may lead to lives being saved in particular is also potentially a human rights violation. So there is some, there's a working assumption that it's, you know, just say no is the most human rights friendly option. Like an internet company should just say no. Um, but by just saying no in a blanket way, they may end up, you know, say, if not responsible for, at least failing uh, to assist in a situation where their assistance could have prevented a serious human rights violation. Yeah, um, and I saw some of those coming across the desk where, you know, it was clear a country that otherwise you, you might have had concerns about, serious good police officers were trying to investigate, you know, a serious offender. And often when you're sitting at the end on the Facebook end of it, you may well be able to see enough of the data, or not me, but the people in the law enforcement team might be able to see enough of the data to understand that this target is legitimate and serious. And in those circumstances, to, to not try and provide a way of doing safe disclosure, I felt would equally be a human rights problem. Right. It's, it's much too simplistic to say that the, the sort of just say no philosophy of, of disclosure is the right one. But that's the one we ran up against. At least I did a lot of times when we were, you know, it's, it's the easy one if you're in a panel. <laughs> yeah. And you want to sort of attack a company for, for doing this, then the, the easy attack is to say that. But let's get back to, so we're back to NSO and the question of whether or not it's legitimate to sell spyware. You said you were concerned about the profit motive, but, you know, it can work if it's under proper uh, oversight and accountability structures. And the, the government can provide some of that, although it should be acknowledged that governments can have incentive structures that can then skew that a little bit too. So so we're, we're, we're easing into accepting that spyware is something that could be sold to governments uh, around the world in a controlled way. Is that, is that where we're... I think, I think that's right. And then we need to think about the controls. Right. And actually, the fact that they're a private company does provide... A really interesting control, which wouldn't be there if they were a government agency, and that, and that is the, the 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 you know they can be sued. So that we may well see this now. If if it turns out that they were enabling, for example, surveillance, uh, you know, totally illegal surveillance of French government officials, the French government are going to sue them. They're going to take them to court. They're going to raise criminal sanctions. I mean, we saw we saw this with things like online gambling companies, for God's sake, which are like, that's a serious thing, but there was, governments had no compunction, particularly the US government, in suing executives of online gambling companies for enabling illegal activity in the US and they would get arrested if they set foot in, in the airport in the US. So again, I'm not wishing this on anyone, but frankly, that is the corrective mechanism that could prove to be the most powerful, which is that if you're selling one of these technologies and you are enabling serious criminal activity in the country, then you're going to get sued and prosecuted. And if you step foot in that country, you're going to get arrested. Um, so that's, I, 
I, I think may end up being sort of one of the very strong checks and balances that exist. The way around that for the company then is effectively to seek to be licensed in the countries where your technology is being used. So, so if um, you genuinely believe as a company that the only people being uh, surveilled by your technology in France, for example, are bad terrorists and pedophiles, you shouldn't have any problem going to the French government. Don't just get the sign off from the Israeli government to do the export. You should be having a conversation with the French government saying, by the way, our technology is going to be found on some phones in your country. This is why, and this is why we think it's okay. And I think governments will be asking to have those conversations now. And as, as the exporting company, I think you're going to have to answer to those uh, conversations. And if you don't, again, I think you're going to face just being shut out, prosecuted, fined. Um, so that's our, our check and balance, I think the most robust check and balance. Yes, and but it's interesting because it suggests that the customers can only be governments and that governments can only surveil domestically. Because I think one of the things that will happen is that many of the international crime networks are truly international and border crossing. Right. And so what happens is, say that you're country A and you want to surveil your criminal network and you know that the criminal network has edges in country B. You're going to surveil them even when they're in country B. And so what, in some sense, what you what you would like to do is then to leave the liability to the client and say that you will be responsible ultimately for the kind of work that you do with my product. And then then you're into gun territory. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Right. And you're sort of, you're arguing that the, the spyware we're selling here, the, the, the technology we're selling here is in itself not harmful. It's the uses of it that our clients can put it to that should be thought about and can be deemed harmful in different ways. So as a company, you can sort of, you can put yourself at arm length distance from how this is being used um, and I think that's where they want to be and again as veterans of Google and Facebook I'm sure we that's also where we wanted to be but we're actually frequently not allowed to just claim you know my network is just a tool and I don't I'm not responsible for the content so again it echoes that debate guns are licensed in all of Europe so you're right I mean yeah, uh, yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a it's a clear it's a clear regime ability but I think even more so here just to say I, th I think that's exactly where NSO would want to be but if you know one of the allegations again just repeat these allegations but the allegations described is is the suggestion that security services in Morocco commission surveillance of people in France. And, and yes, I think NSO's position well, is A, they don't think that happened, but B, if it did happen, you know, that's nothing to do with them. That would be between the Moroccans and the French. I don't think the French are going to allow that, frankly. Um, and nor do I think they necessarily should. I mean, the way either, either the vendor company has to do amazing due diligence and beyond, be beyond reproach and make sure that the government it's selling to doesn't do anything that will upset a third country or if they can't do that then the third country is going to come straight at the vendor and, and yeah. i find it hard to argue why they shouldn't if 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 you know some of this stuff turns out to be the case i mean you can imagine being in government anywhere and you find that some company has been selling some other government the technology that allows them to spy on your political leadership Wow, like you're not going to take that lying down. So you are going to take measures, I think, in those. And, and, and there are criminal. There's, there's criminal law that can be applied here too. I presume, yeah. right? It's it's oh, well, yeah, surveillance without consent. I mean, it, it is exactly. you know it, it is illegal uh, in no. pretty much any country yeah. to, to intercept a communication with, without permission. 
And in this case, you you know, if you were accessing the phone of a senior person in government, you're intercepting the communications, very sensitive communications of lots of people. It's not just the person whose phone it is, but it's everybody they talk to. Uh, so you've committed like a huge criminal offence by doing that. Now, if you're the security service of a foreign country, A, you probably claim some kind of immunity, and B, it's going to be quite hard to get hold of you and prosecute you. Um, and, and you know, you're, unless Bellingcat finds out who you are, <laughs> prints the photos of you, you're going to perhaps sort of be hiding behind things. But I think that, again, may come out of it very, very robustly if, if some of this stuff turns out to be correct. And again, I, uh, maybe the French government will end up going after both. They will, they will find the agencies that commissioned the work or they believe commissioned the work. And they will also go after the software provider that enabled the surveillance. And, and again, I find it hard to argue why they shouldn't take that action if this has been happening. If you, if you, sort of, if you shift context slightly and you think about this as, as um, a hack or a hacker attack or some kind of intrusion in a computer system, uh, we've seen the debate between the US and Russia recently heat up significantly. And, and um, there's, been, there's been some talk in the news about the US administration declaring certain systems off limits. And it's almost as if we're, we're, we're at the stage where we're figuring out what the game rules are for this new form of engagement, this new domain in which conflict will play out. And it's true for, for computer intrusion and manipulation of networks, et cetera, but it's also equally going to be true of course, for, for surveillance of different kinds that's cross-border. So, so do you think that we have a need for some kind? Is there, in the, the sort of Microsoft response to this would be, we need an international treaty uh, along the Geneva lines to sort of set out what the ground rules are here so we can, we can settle this domain, just like we did for chemical weapons. We now need to talk about this for real. That's sort of yeah. the, the Microsoft approach. I think we have to, I mean, again, again, that example, you know, if somebody sitting in their bedroom in the UK hacked into Joe Biden's phone, you know, the US would prosecute them. They'd seek their extradition. They'd want to haul them over to the US and sort of lock away for 20 years. We've had a number of sort of very high profile cases of that kind of hacking. I think there's one still going on as well. So, so um, you know, the hacker would, would be hauled off. If it was GCHQ doing it, the UK spy agency, that hacked into Joe Biden's phone, which they might do, and, and you know, perfectly le- legitimately from their point of view, say, I don't know if there's a sort of rules against it, but they might say, look, it's in the UK's national interest that we do this. They're not, there's then going to be a government to government conversation. <laughs> you, you, you kind of kind of like hold GCHQ off under an extradition warrant in the same way. So I think these government to government conversations are inevitable. And, and again, if we look at that example of Morocco, France, Israel, you know, if if stuff emerges showing there was something going on, actually the ultimate resolution is probably going to be a conversation between all those governments that decide on a new set of rules of engagement. And actually, if you remember back to Snowden, part of the Snowden revelation was that the NSA was spying on Angela Merkel. <laughs> and uh, that, that didn't lead to the Germans prosecuting the NSA, but it led to, um, uh, actually, I think the US committed not to spy anymore uh, on Angela Merkel and made some kind of you know, concession. But I think we're going to have to have that. And I actually think that is the other bit of the framework that is critical, given these are where the, where the activity is happening on behalf of the government, where, where um, we, the taxpayers, are paying for the hacking to take place, um, <laughs> which is literally the case, then, then in those cases, the, those matters can only really be, the, or the rules of the road can only really be set by intergovernmental conversations. And that may be something that comes out of this, which is a set of standards 
and we have things like the, the various forms of cybersecurity treating things going on now, but maybe there's some set of standards that says, look, if governments agree to meet these standards, including sort of mutual withholding, I, I, I will, um, governments agree that I will only pursue terrorists and paedophiles into your territory and I will never come after your politicians or journalists, for example. Um, you can imagine a whole sort of set of standards that are being, could be developed. Um, and maybe then you say, look, these tools can only be sold between governments or countries, companies in countries where they are signatories to this new set of standards. And it's, it's interesting because from there, you, the, the jump is not that fanciful to go and say that, well, maybe this is the international data protection treaty that we need that would allow us to say, you know, if a country fulfills these basic requirements, we're going to consider them as equivalent in terms of the level of data protection they're offering their citizens. And you could also include MLATs in that, the mutual legal assistance yeah. treaties, and say, we are going to, if they do so, also allow for a quicker exchange of law enforcement information between these countries. And by the way, here are also the rules of engagement outside of those very specific, legitimate. They're tied together in some way, aren't they? They seem to be related. Yes, yeah, it's the outside. I mean, again, um, it may struggle a little bit with, with this sort of um, hitting on regular data protection law because data protection law's dirty little secret is that you, sort of paragraph one, it says this doesn't apply to anything related to national security. So, so um, this, oh, but that's not true for the, if you think about the European Union discussions, right? I mean, there's, there's the... the but you're absolutely right when it comes to the intralegal model. Yeah. About the sort of the equivalence decisions, for example. Exactly. So you need, there does need to be a conversation. And that's what the US and the EU are trying to grasp towards is some, some sort of understanding of what's legitimate in terms of law enforcement access and so on. But it will be outside the sort of regular commercial data protection framework, as I say, because every, every law I've ever seen sort of has this sort of get out of jail right. free card for for um, stuff that's related to national security, uh, which is often missed. And people go, oh, well, data protection law is great. It protects me from the government. It doesn't. It, it really protects doesn't. protects you from companies. Uh, <laughs> but it, it rarely sort of gives you much kind of robust protection against government because governments have given themselves a sort of uh, get out. In some areas, it does, but I don't want to overstate it. But certainly when it comes to hard-end national security. And there um, are law enforcement treaty discussions between the UK yeah. and US as well, so, and sort of yeah. the, the committee agreements and the idea that, that maybe we can find uh, commonalities here. And, and, and as always, the institutional uh, sort of creativity lags the technical by decades. And so it's, it seems that a, a fruitful way forward here would be not just to establish ground rules, but also to establish what's clearly off limits. And yes. I think that's what you, if you read the Biden comments closely, what I felt when I read them was that he is trying to, to sort of recognize that this is a new reality, is a new domain of conflict and struggle. It's going to be where a lot of, of different conflicts play out, but there has to be limits to the kinds of engagement that we will allow. And, you know, attacking basic infrastructure and hospitals and energy grids or networks those are just outside of the realm of what's... And that suggests international treaty to me. So It, it does. And, and I think people coming down collectively really hard on those who breach it. So, so again, if the international treaty says, as I hope it would, look, spying tools are legit, but not for going after political opponents and people who annoy you. Um, and then if it turns out that somebody has broken that, whether that's a company or a government turning a blind eye to it, 
everybody who's a signatory has to come down really hard and name and shame those people and like make sure. And you have to have audits and accountability. Exactly. We, we almost have to think in, in terms of analogs with, with, with the, um, the conventions on nuclear arms, where yeah. you actually have a UN agency that's only listening to seismic shifts and trying yeah. to figure out if those seismic shifts are legitimate or illegitimate yeah. seismic shifts and what that yeah. indicates about what actually generated them. So so there's, there's a lot of institutional work to be done here in order to get this right. And it seems right. to be increasingly acute given what the Pegasus revelations... Yeah. Yeah. To, to suggest one, one model as, it, as we sort of head toward the close that, that we have, we have in the UK a, a surveillance commissioner and people can like criticize it, but there is somebody who is ostensibly independent who in secret, because your individual wiretaps and things are not a public in the public domain, but they do look at them all. And under the law, they're required to audit and check that everything's fine. And the individual citizen can go and take a complaint to them. Um, and so you do need something like that. And again, what, what we're seeing in the, in the Pegasus files, the media story, effectively is a very public audit uh, with imperfect information and, and that is being challenged and contested of, of what's been going on. Actually, far better would have been, you're right, some institutional surveillance commissioner who NSO has to answer to, which is not just the Israeli government, but perhaps consists of representatives of all of the different countries where NSO uh, software is being used, that is able to audit what they are doing um, for propriety, not necessarily giving away state security secrets, but can do it in such a way that they can reassure the public uh, that what that company is doing is consistent with human rights law. And, it, and that's the kind of mechanism exactly you need. And again, I think it's, it's being done by the newspapers and may end up being done in courts. Um, it's already started a little bit in this uh, WhatsApp court case in the US, and then say may now roll into the French courts and other courts. Uh, but perhaps it would have been better ab initio to have had somebody doing that uh, rather than just relying on, you know, NSO's claims versus somebody else's claims. And it's sort of he said, she said situation yeah. where, where everything is just meshed up. And I, I, feel, I feel quite strongly that it would, and again, it's an institutional question. Most of the institutions we have uh, were, were brought into force at the close of the Second World War. Uh, when it comes to how technology is used in warfare, for example, so they're in dire need of updating, and and here's where I think you know it's 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 one of the weaknesses of the current technological debate is that it lacks institutional imagination. It doesn't really think in institutions, and I think you know that's something that that has to change if we want to find real, lasting, durable solutions to the questions that technology is asking of us as a society, or, or we will just end up with patches. You know, it's great yeah. with the news looking into this and the sort of the, the media really auditing this, but, but it doesn't have the ability to also arbit this, to be the arbiters of what is or what are we actually going to say happened. And, and I think that's that's ultimately going to be very frustrating, not least for the people on the list and, and yeah. for the human rights activists and others who are living in, in an increasingly uncertain world, it seems. Well, I'm saying this, this one, the, the thing that gives me most confidence is not going to go away is the inclusion of the French government yeah. uh, uh, senior people on the list, because the, the, the risk is you have a little bit of a fuss. And then, you know, the governments go, yeah, but it's actually constraining us if we pass any laws or change anything. So we, it happened a little bit after Snowden. There was kind of fuss after Snowden, but it kind of tailed off. Um, whereas when they're going after private companies for privacy stuff, then, you know, politicians are all in because it's kind of hurting the private company, but doesn't constrain them. 
here it's about putting constraints on themselves, you know, and, and I'm sure people will say that French government, can you hand on heart say you never do this to any other government officials in any other country? Um, there's a risk it sort of goes quite bad. As you think this one may run uh, precisely yeah. because of that, because the French government have taken such a public stand, they have to get to the bottom of it. Um, mm. And so there are going to be, I think, some interesting processes that shed light on all of this, which will benefit us. And Macron does have an international institutional imagination. So you're he right. does. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I think we're roughly at time and there's so much more to say about this and we'll get back to it, I'm certain, in, in later episodes. But uh, you can find this episode and the much more interesting content on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And thank you very much for listening. As always, let us know if you have thoughts, ideas, or we should say ideas of guests that you think we should invite to the show, because that's something that we're thinking about. Series two, we would like to expand series two out from the two of us to include. Exactly. And and, uh, we we would love to have your ideas uh, about guests. And uh, with that, uh, thank you for listening and hope to have you with us again next week. Bye.